Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Hailing from Syracuse, New York, our next guest is a now LA-based composer who is known for his work on many incredible TV shows, including Star vs. the Forces of Evil. After graduating from USC's film scoring program, he started assisting How I Met Your Mother composer John Spyhart, with whom he also produced a lot of the songs for the show. He's also the co-composer of Amazon Prime's Panic, having co-wrote the score with Isabella Summers of Florence and the Machine. I'm super excited to have him on this uh, podcast over here, and the composer is Brian H. Kim. Hey, thanks, man. Thank you for having me. That's a very nice intro. I... uh it's funny to think of all that stuff together in one place because it's all spread out over many years. But yeah, it looks like, yeah, all of those things I did. Yeah, that, that is me. <laughs> that is me. How odd. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Syracuse? Because I'm from New York City, but I mean, Syracuse oh, is pretty yeah. different. <laughs> it was cold. It was very cold. Um, it snowed a lot. You know, one of my earliest memories from childhood is, is opening the front door and having the snow. It, the snow was like pressed up against the front door, like dirt against a retaining wall. And it was about as tall as I was because I was a kid and I think it was like three feet tall of snow. And so we like dug a tunnel to get out of our front door to like get into the yard. Um, and for a kid, like that's awesome. But for a grown up, that must have been awful. <laughs> you know. Um, but no, it was it was it was a good place, I think, for for us and like what my family needed. Uh, you know, my dad was a doctor and that was a really nice place for him to raise a family. We worked we lived a little bit north of Syracuse, actually, in a small town called Pulaski, which everybody else pronounces Pulaski, except for the people who live in Pulaski. So we would pronounce it Pulaski. Um, and uh, he had a really nice practice where he was sort of like the town doctor, you know. Um, and everybody knew who he was and everybody knew who I was, but it was just so small. And so, you know, I went to high school in Syracuse instead. And while I really liked it, I knew that um, I wanted to do if, if I wasn't going to be a creative per- person professionally, which I didn't want to do when I was a kid because I didn't think that was a possible profession. I wanted to be a doctor. I knew that if I was going to be something else, I wanted to live in a city that had like more creative opportunities. Um, I think Syracuse has probably come a long way since I was a kid there. But when I was there, it was sort of like an artistic dead-end city to live in in a lot of ways. Like, not a big live music scene, good orchestra, um, Mm -hmm. but, like, not many creative opportunities beyond that. And so I knew I wanted to get out um, when I graduated high school, um, and I did. And, you know, going back to visit is always super nice now, but it is not a place that I think I was ever going to live long term. Did you say that you did want to be a doctor then? I did. Yeah, I that was my, my dad um was a, a family physician for decades. My mother was a, a registered nurse before she had kids. And uh yeah, they both went to a uh, university in uh in South Korea and then my dad got um sent over and worked in New Jersey uh for a while. My mom was living in Canada and uh yeah, they met and sort of decided to live in the middle of the two places where they <laughs> originally were in upstate New York. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it was always just what I thought I was going to do because that was what my family did. And like, it was a really convenient thing. Be like, oh, we always need, you know, antibiotics. If one of us gets sick, great. Dad will just go to the office and get some for us. So like he has free samples of, of, of all of these things and he, he knows how to use them properly. We always had free Tylenol because we just had so many free <laughs> samples of that stuff. Um, and it was just like, if any of us ever got sick, we never really had to go anywhere for immediate advice because my dad was just there and he would just take care of us. And I always thought that makes sense. Mm. That is a good way to raise a family. Um, but when I went to college uh, and started studying pre-med uh, in college, I just, I, I hated it just like so much. It was the worst. <laughs> it was the worst. Yeah. For me, anyway. For other people, I'm sure it's great. But for me, not so much. Yeah, it's funny because I I feel like I wanted to get into music since like 13 or something, like, you know, played violin and a bit of piano because my well, yeah, Korean mom and Chinese dad. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's what you do. Yeah. 
But then it was like Guitar Hero 3 came out. And I remember like loving it, you know? <laughs> yeah, my, my, my parents were always really, uh, um, they were supportive of music as a hobby. Like I, they got my sister started. I have an older sister, uh, three, about three years older than I am. And she was taking piano lessons first because she was older. Um, and then I just saw her playing one day and I was like, that looks fun. I think I was about five. Um, wow. And I started playing piano when I was about five. And my parents were super supportive of it. And they thought it was like a really, I mean... Korean immigrant parents, like, yeah, they're going to want their kid to learn piano. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I studied that. And uh, as I got better and better at it, they were like, mm, why don't you practice a little bit less and focus on studying a little bit more? Um, but yeah, I, I still did recitals and competitions and was very intense about it for a while. I was studying with conservatory professors when I was a teenager and traveling around and, and, and competing at these like, you know, large competitions where people were coming from all over the country and occasionally doing okay most of the time like not winning but like doing fine um but uh, yeah my the, all of my teachers in high school my piano teachers in high school assumed that i was going to go to conservatory or study music in college in some way um but i think uh i had had it so drilled in my head that being a professional musician was just not something that you do um, that I just just sort of quashed it down like deep in my soul. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to do the practical thing. I'm going right. <laughs> to provide for my family. I feel like nowadays there's this thing of like, you know, you go to Carnegie Hall or you go to, you know, Disney Hall or something and you see a lot of Asians in the orchestra playing like musicians, at least like maybe not that mm -hmm. many conductors or mm -hmm. anyone like that. But I feel like that part is a little more normalized now. Still not like, yeah, I mean, there can be a thing with uh, Asian parents who, you know, want their kids to play music, but maybe not do it as a professional full-time things. Yeah, I th that's exactly where my parents were. And I think even where they thought, you know, if I could be a professional pianist in some way, I just, they didn't have any sort of template or example. They right. didn't know anybody who did that. And they they just didn't know how much money he, uh, somebody would make, you know, how regularly would that money come in um, and the sort of education that it would require and and um, ongoing education even. Like they, none of that was really on our radar because we just had no we had no examples. My parents were immigrants. They didn't know anybody who, were do, who was doing that sort of thing. Right. There's no barometer of like what this yeah. means. Yeah. No. Yeah. And even in the middle of college, when I decided I didn't want to do pre-med, I, I, I switched over to computer science because I was like, I can point to like Bill Gates and be like, <laughs> that is a smart computer person who earns a lot of money. Here is an example that I can show my parents that computer science is like a viable, <laughs> a viable career. Um, and I like computer science, but you know, I, I was really bad at it. So obviously I'm not doing that now for, <laughs> for a living and probably for good reason. Yeah. Was there a moment where you like talked to your parents about like, I, I mean, I know you went to USC's film scoring program. So mm -hmm. was there a moment where you talked to them about like, like, Hey mom, dad, like I, I want to be a musician full time. Or did you never have that? It was basically like it was. It was right when I got into USC. <laughs> I applied to um, oh, so did, NYU. Did they know that, they, that you applied? No. Mm. I don't think I don't. I don't remember telling them that I applied. I don't remember telling them about anything about it until I got in because I don't think I wanted to tell them that I applied and then fail at it. Um, because I hadn't really been writing very much music up until that point in my life. I'd only written a few things in college, like a handful of things, and none of which I would play for anybody now. Um, but uh, no, I never, I didn't want to apply and have them think I was going to try to do this professional thing and then fail at it and have them be like, ah, see, we told you so. Uh, you're not good enough to go to school. Uh, I just like, I didn't want that um, for, I didn't want that for my own emotional stability. <laughs> so no, I, I didn't, I didn't tell them until after, um, until after I got in. And, you know, uh, I think because I had already, at that point I had moved down to DC and I was a music teacher at that point. So they knew that like, I was sticking with the music to a certain extent. Um, and teaching was something that also that they understood. They like, they know teachers and like, they're like, you know, it's not a great paying job. It's a, it's a criminally underpaid job, but they're like, we know what that is. It comes with a pension, you know, it, it, like all of that, all that stuff. And so uh, they understood that. And so when I, when, when I dropped the, I'm going to California to be a professional musician bomb on them, there was kind of a, like a, <sighs> Okay, <laughs> kind of reaction from them. But you know, from minute one, when I when I told them, like after I think they processed it, after that first minute of sighing, I think they they they, they were really on board. Um, and 
you know, they they helped uh, pay for some of like my graduate school expenses. They were really stoked that I was moving to Koreatown when I moved to Los Angeles <laughs> because they that was some place they didn't know existed until they came out here after I moved here, and they were like, "Wow, this is like Korea, but it's here." Koreatown, New York City versus LA. Oh God, night and day. Koreatown, New York City is just like it's like a block of Koreatown, Los Angeles in comparison. Lovely, great food in Koreatown, New York City. Incredible food, but just like the expanse of like the Koreatown, Los Angeles. Like there's no like Galleria or Koreatown Plaza like in the middle of New York City just because there isn't the, the space for it. But here, I mean, my parents walk into, now my parents live in uh, Pasadena and so they're very familiar with it now. And so they're, they, they walk into the Galleria and it's just like being in a Korean mall basically. Um, but yeah, once I moved out here, once they saw... They heard some things that I was writing at USC, and then I started working for a couple of composers while I was at USC. I worked as an assistant for Chris Beck, and for I was working nights at Chris Leonard's studio. Jeez. I didn't tell, yeah, I didn't tell Chris Beck that I was working nights at Chris Leonard's studio because <laughs> uh, you know Jake Monaco, he's been on this podcast. Yeah. He was he was the assistant there, and I told Jake I was like, listen, after I leave here, I'm going to go over to Chris Leonard's studio and just cut a bunch of loops for him. And Jake was like, don't tell Chris Beck. <laughs> don't tell Chris. He's, <laughs> they're constantly going for the same gigs. Just like, don't tell him. Um, but I'm telling you guys here now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I would, I would leave school. I would drive to Santa Monica, go to Chris Beck's studio. And then when I was done doing an afternoon shift at Chris Beck's studio, I would drive across just from Santa Monica to Marina Del Rey and then I'd go to Chris Lanerich's studio and then do like a late night shift there. Go home, do my homework, wake up the next morning, go back to class at USC. You know, um, but once they saw how much I was doing, they, they were really supportive of all that. And they just thought it was like really cool that I could do this. Amazing. But I mean, just to take a quick step back, I mean, you were with two of the, I mean, still most popular composers like in the. Uh, yeah. The and, like, and like the weird, the, the weird thing in the, at the time was that like, I was so new to this. Like you said, like I didn't spend that much time listening to film scores. So like I knew who Chris Beck was because we're alumni of the same acapella group. Whoa. And I saw his name on a bunch of charts when I was directing this acapella group when I was in college. And so like, I knew who he was and I knew that he went to Yale and I knew he did, um, like a bunch of comedies at the time. He hadn't done Hangover. He hadn't done Frozen at that time. This, but I knew he did Buffy, which is a show that I very much enjoyed. Um, but like it, in my in my own ignorance, I I didn't really know who Chris Leonard's was. I had heard his music, but I didn't know that it was him because I wasn't as much of like a listener fan at that point. After I started working for him, and that, that when I started listening to his his music, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I have been familiar with this man's work for several years at this point. Just I I didn't know that I was listening to him. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like looking back on it, I sort of, I can't believe that I was able to land jobs at both of those studios simultaneously um, and was just able to hear things just like being a fly on the wall, um, just like listening to the stuff they were doing because the stuff that they were doing then and now, obviously, is just sort of like, it's like the pinnacle of like what a lot of people are in this career can do. And so just being in their studios, I, at the time when I was working for Chris Leonard's, I was cutting a bunch of loops that... Uh, George Deering had made for him on multiple instruments for uh, for for a game he was working on, and just like hearing that stuff and like the level of musicianship that George was bringing when literally like Chris just like pressed record, walked away, and just like set a ticker and said to George, just just play stuff, just like play a bunch of loops that I can cut into the score later. Here are some charts in front of you. Improvise on it. Do do what you're gonna do. Um, and just like being able to hear that stuff and then seeing later what Chris was able to do with it and the score that he was working on is just like I took for granted at the time just what a high level of work that it was. Um, but in retrospect, I can be like, yeah, damn, though, that's 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 the good stuff right there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that I mean, I feel like when I was around college, I think it was like my junior year to my senior and I interned at remote control. I was like, there's some mm -hmm. things where I would see um the people working in the Han Zimmer environment, just like the way they mm -hmm. approached how to get minutes of music done where it's like, okay, so that's how I'm going to do it when I get my own shows. <laughs> um, or just like, you know, how to even just like organize, you know, all your sessions in a finder folder mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I remember seeing mm -hmm. your, uh, your thing on Instagram when you finished on how I met your mother and you just transferred everything over to the, uh, a different hard drive. And I copied that, that they'll like, look oh you know? yeah it's, yeah it's like really bittersweet and when i when I, I when i did that with when i finished star same thing it was just like well all the folders are green now that means i'm done with all of them i guess there's nothing left to do i'm just gonna move it to the archived ses uh, section of the of the storage and and that's it right. it's a, it's a weird 
thing. And I've had multiple shows get canceled very quickly since then. And so it has become a more frequent occurrence. Lots of green. <laughs> but <laughs> a lot of green things. We're like, oh, not coming back to this one. <laughs> In that regard, did on. the assisting uh, help you a lot as you've, I mean, now gone on to doing more of your own mm. projects? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, when, uh, so I'm going to see, see if I can remember all the different composers I've worked for. So I worked for Chris Beck. I worked for Chris Leonard's. I did a bunch of work for Todd Haberman for a time. Uh, John Swihart, obviously I worked for John for years. Um, I did a couple of little things for Daniel Licht. I did some stuff for Robert Folk. I, uh, gosh, uh, Matteo Messina, I've worked with a bunch, um, as an orchestrator, uh, Clint Shorter, I did a bunch of orchestration for, um, uh, I conducted some sessions for Mateo as well. Just like all of these different guys, they all have, you know, I think I've been able to glean various um, uh, workflows from everybody. Everybody works so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the nice things about seeing uh, so many different people's studios, so many different people's just like email etiquette and just like the way that they they communicate and just seeing that like there is no one right way to do this, you know? Um and they they showed me different ways that they were organizing their hard drives. This is like very technical and like blah, but like different ways of organizing their samples on their hard drives, or just like different way that they would class like uh, categorize all their emails in folders so they could keep projects straight. Uh, different ways that they made art for back in the day when we made demo CDs. I was making a lot of demo CDs for Swihart and Chris Beck back in the day, and just like different ways that they organized that and the way they sent that out, and the way that you had to keep all of that stuff really uh, regimented if you were going to work at a high clip and if you were going to be able to do these things quickly without without that much um, uh, time overhead. And so, yeah, every I think I think I took something from every single uh, studio that I, that I worked for and every composer that I did orchestration for or, or assisting work for, I think I learned something different from every single one of them. And now I look at my setup now and it's like such a hodgepodge of those things because I think I took the, the, the elements that I thought worked best for my personality and my workflow and then like sort of smooshed them all together. And then now I think if you looked at my folders, you wouldn't really be able to recognize any, any sort of organization from another, from another guy. But I think it was just sort of a, a piece by piece thing. And now I have a folder system that I, I'm very, very attached to, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, I think works well for, for for what it is that I do. Yeah. On top of that, do you feel like you had? Um, I mean, I, I think you were with with John's fire at the longest, but mm-hmm. I want to ask mm-hmm. about like, uh, you know, it's different working for someone, but as opposed to calling someone like a mentor. So I want to ask mm-hmm. if like, if John, if you consider him a mentor, or if there's any other mentors who kind of like helped you in your journey. Yeah, I, I worked for John Swihart for like four years. Wow. I think it's impossible to not consider somebody like that a, a mentor and just like a really good friend at this point. We kept in touch a lot over the pandemic year. He started teaching himself cello, right? And I, I had like just bought a violin to teach myself violin. I was like, I'm doing that too. <laughs> We're both awful at it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he he's been great, um, and it's continued to 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 have been great just as a, as a guy just to call every now and then and just like shoot ideas off of um and just like just kind of you know just 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 hang out with he's a really good hang <laughs> John, which i think is like one of his biggest selling points as a collaborator he's just like a good dude you just like want to get a beer with him and just sort of and just hang out um but he also what i think i got most out of working for john is that he is like a very blue collar guy. Um, like he, he, he used to like paint houses in Boston before he became a professional musician and like was a touring musician for a while and has had a, a lot of odd jobs. Um, and just, he approaches, um, work in a very like humble, uh, this is a job manner. And like, obviously a very enormously creative and talented musician, but like he doesn't get swept up in the like, um, any preciousness in, in 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 what he does? It's it's very much like he he knows that he's that that what he's going to make is very good. He knows what he can bring to a project, but he's like he's such a professional about it and like a, a humble professional about it, um, which I think is is really awesome and uh, is something that you know you're around that for long enough as and as a young person that will sort of when I was working for him, I was in my twenties, and that sort of like rubs off on you, mm-hmm. and it just like it 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 casts a very distinct impression on what you think uh, the profession could be and like what the industry could be for you. Yeah. I mean, I've only hung out with him in person once, but I remember him uh, telling me some stuff about Napoleon Dynamite. And oh, yeah. He has like the, 
insane turnaround time with that. I think he said he dropped off the CD as his wife was giving birth. Yep, that's that's the story. Yeah, <laughs> that's the story that he tells everybody. I believe it, you know. And uh, yeah, like it's uh, it's wild. Those kids are like. Those kids are grown up now. <laughs> they're like 17, 18 years old now, and they're 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 big now, uh, which is wild. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's his that's his that's his story. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, again, it's just like, I mean, it seems like he's a consistently like everyone says he's a nice guy and he knows his mm-hmm. stuff and mm-hmm. yeah, just like a, a a sick guitar player. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. really get to sh- like to show his chops that often, but like just like insane technical skill on the guitar it's but really good guitar he, he was telling us about the modular synth too but for me it's bus yeah. rider from napoleon dynamite oh yeah man there that's that's, that's the, the thing shredding. Yeah, we, yeah we uh yeah <laughs> and i wonder like I, I'm, I'm sure everybody has like those pieces of music that this is to follow them around <laughs> their entire life and i think that's probably one for him we worked with a hip-hop artist at one point who sampled a bunch of stuff from the napoleon dynamite soundtrack Whoa. um yeah and uh and 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 john contributed some new material to it too but that was that was funny just to see that happen yeah for sure so can you talk about like how the transition from because john was the last person you kind of assisted um mm-hmm. How, how you go from that to being able to like take on or like, I don't know, like were you scoring like shorts or shows um, for him? No, not really. Um, I, while I was working for him, there was an editor that he worked on for, on, on one of his films that kind of took a shine to me. Um, his name's Troy Takaki, um, Japanese American editor, really successful, does a lot of rom-com work. And he had a very small indie film that he was editing almost as a favor to the producers who he knew. And then um, he didn't want to go to Swihart for it because it was like a little bit too small for what John was. But John was doing like five TV shows at the time. He just like didn't have time for it anyway. Right. But Troy knew me and knew what I could do. And so he went to me for that. So I got that film while I was working for John. And then about a month later, I booked another film um, uh, from a mutual friend who recommended a director to me, uh, the film GBF, uh, directed by Darren Stein, who did Jawbreaker. Um, so he got referred to me. So I was, I did those two films back to back. And I remember I just came into work one day, like super haggard. I had only come into work three days that week. We had a second assistant at Swihart Studio at that time um, named, named Dave Gonzalez. Um, and he uh, he was already coming in a lot. And so I was only coming in part time. And one day I came in and Swihart was like, ah, so this is probably like your last week here or something. Just like very nonchalantly. I was like, ah, I guess so. <laughs> I haven't been here very very often and I uh, I guess that makes sense um, so yeah I just sort of like stopped working it was very like unceremonious I was like I had two movies and I just I had to do them um, and then those move, two movies were done and then I had like nothing to do <laughs> I was just home all the time I didn't have a full time job anymore um, and that and I didn't have any projects to score and so I was doing a little bit of additional music for John he was just like throwing me bones on a few shows that I was still working uh, uh, at the time when I left um, and uh Eventually, I scored another small indie film by the same producers who did the I did the move the movie I did with Troy, um, and I needed a music supervisor uh, for that. So I went to uh, my good friend Andy Gowan, who is now a music uh, creative executive at Netflix, but is what was previously a music supervisor, and he worked on How I Met Your Mother, and I brought him onto that film. Um, and Andy Gowan was represented by Gorfain Schwartz at the time. And um, when Andy got hired on this and had to do the contract, his agent Kevin um, Kevin Corn was saying who was the composer on the on the movie. Andy introduced him to me a week prior. Um, it was all a bunch of kismet, basically. A week prior, uh, the composer Joe Trapanese, who was also a friend of mine, had mentioned me to Kevin as like somebody who was going to probably have a career at some point. Um, and so Kevin basically got two recommendations about me within the span of like 10 days. Mm. And I was like, okay, I should probably talk to Brian. And then, uh, yeah, signed on with Kevin. The very first thing Kevin had me demo for was Star versus the Forces of Evil. Wow. I booked it after like a six-week demoing uh, spree, and I booked that. And then since then, it was just sort of off and running. And like I went, you know, probably when Panic finished was like the first time that I stopped working and maybe, you know, when was Star? When did I start working on Star? I started working on Star in 2014. And so I worked pretty consistently between 2014 to 2021 when we finished up Panic and when we just finished up Panic a couple of months ago. So it's not like I've been sitting here doing nothing. (laughs) um, Yeah, that was a really long stretch of just like gig, 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 like just one after the other, which has been really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny because when I've, I mean, I have a bit of a weird story, but when I first moved to LA, I 
yeah, the first thing I ever pitched for too, I got, and I just figured after that point, it's like, oh yeah, it's easy here. On it's it. easy, and then yeah. Twenty seven pitches in. After that, it's like, oh, oh my god, landing, <laughs> you know, just throwing darts. Yeah, at the wall. yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it is tricky. Um, it's you're gonna fail so much more often than you succeed. <laughs> sure. And like, I'm gonna send out things, and you know, get called into meetings, and 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 read. Um, read show Bibles and read scripts and just like really get into these things and prep and, you know, go to the meeting. I think it's a great meeting. And then just sometimes it just does not work out, you know, but when it does, it's like, you know, I've done this long enough and have gotten enough things that to know that when it does, it really does work out for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when this, when you get the gigs that, that really makes sense for you and you work with the collaborator collaborators who, who really are sort of on the same wavelength, you know, it's much better to have a gig like that than to have a gig where you've sort of been shoehorned into where maybe somebody didn't really want to hire you and they knew you weren't really a good fit, but you sort of landed into it anyway. And then it's kind of a struggle, you know, the the creative struggle, the, the creative connection just like is not 100% there. And it's a, it's a tangible difference um, between the gigs when it's like a much more natural uh, sort of mutually agreed uh, creative direction than when it's sort of been forced upon one person or the other. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's like, I mean, even the biggest composers probably don't get a majority of the things that they might want. Oh, I would, I would I'd probably not. Yeah. Just, the, and even with the amount, you know, people say sometimes like, oh, isn't there just like so many gigs because like Netflix is just cr- cranking out all these things. Like, yeah, there are. But also there's like a ton of people who are being discovered as composers all the time, being right. pulled from all different walks of life. And like they're bringing new and really exciting things to these projects that, you know, it's not going to be the same composer over and over again, um, sort of just expected to do, this, to, to do the same thing anymore because, like, the, the, the supply is there. Yeah. I, I think film composing probably right now is at its peak, you know, interest level for so many people. I think so, yeah. I think so. Just I think especially with social media, mm-hmm. uh, people can find the composers that they like and they get additional behind the scenes information about, you know, how, how stuff is being made and like the software is so good now and you have composers and, uh, you have companies like, you know, 8DO and Spitfire and just like all these, all, um, and like smaller companies too, like, you know, uh, I don't know, like that sound drums Splice, is like a drum sampling right? company. Yeah. Splice is huge. Splice is just giving everybody all Here's of this stuff for such sounds. a small, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. For, for eight bucks, you know, and just like all of these tools are so, are so available. You know, when I yeah. started working uh, in this stuff, I was working on Logic, and Logic was a thousand dollars when you when when I started wow. when I started buying Logic. Um, and then Apple bought it and decreased the price by fifty percent, and like incorporated so much of what Logic was in, in into GarageBand. And so like all of these tools are like so democratized. Yeah, and and Spyheart yeah. uses Reaper, which is free too. Spyheart uses Reaper. Like, come on, man, <laughs> you can do anything. On I wrote a song on an iPad on a bus, and then, like <laughs> I used it like in uh, in a project later. Like things can, you can, you, ha- you have these tools and, and the great stuff is available and anybody can make an awesome track on anything. There was, there was a video going viral years ago about, you know, somebody who made their iPhone say the word zero, 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 zero over and over again. They like, they put in like, what is, you know, 10 to like the one millionth power. And then they use that zero and then like did a little beat on a table with some pens. And it was, it was Japanese people. Cause obviously a Japanese person would do, <laughs> but they made this really sick beat on a table with this zero, 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 zero sample going behind them. And that got like, you know, millions of views and like you can make something interesting i'm not saying that like that person is going to go and score the next netflix drama but i'm saying that like you know the ability to create something really cool sounding that is going to touch a nerve with a large audience is like it's the tools are, are better and more readily available than they've ever been yeah i'm still uh i mean obviously there's pop songs being made on garage band or cubasis on mm-hmm. the ipad or phone mm-hmm. I- i'm curious to see if uh the film scoring thing can get there in the future because I think there's a lot of advantages to being able to work mobily in that way. Yeah, I think so. I haven't even really been able to make a viable setup on a laptop just given my own <laughs> workflow. I know a lot of people do. Um, yeah, but h- I think hook up Vienna you know, Ensemble Pro to your iPad. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> just the, just the thought of it is like makes me sad. Really, <laughs> out of troubleshooting. But um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I I think that. It's sort of like a double-edged – sorry, there's two, there's two sides to this coin of like, yes, like it's really awesome that so many things are being able to be made in, in a democratic fashion. But at the same time, like you do 
get sort of connected to um, the amount of work that you put into like this very stable setup at your own desk that you've put a lot of work into like figuring out the right hardware, figuring out your workflow, really getting the speaker set into the perfect position to be there so that you can come and you can sit down and you can just start writing and everything's going to work properly and you don't really have to think about it. And so I think there's something to be said about like the stable studio setup, but I mean who knows where how powerful things are going to be and how modular things are going to be in the future. Like maybe you can carry around six iPads and just like get this really cool little rack that you can put on like an airplane seat in front of you and just have like a six iPad setup sure. when you're flying across country and make a track, you know? I don't know. Yeah, well we'll get into some more tech in a sec, but I mean I- Outside of, you know, the tools making it easier to, to sound good and have something that sounds mm-hmm. like a production, do you feel like it's easier to write music now than it was when you started? Oh, just from, like, my own, like, personal workflow or just in terms of what's available? Both, maybe. If- Both? Yeah, no, I guess so. Um, you know, one of the biggest things probably is that when I was an intern at so many other different studios, their setups had, you know a dozen computers running simultaneously, you know? They had, oh, God, what was it called? Plogue? Plogue Bidou? Oh, yeah. Running, um, running on <laughs> Mac minis. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, running on Mac minis, and that was connected over MIDI over LAN, and that was what you needed to be able to run a full orchestra's worth of samples when you were doing orchestral mock-ups. Um, but now... I can just run it all. I, I have a Mac Pro from 2014, one of the little Darth Vader trash can looking things. I can run my entire orchestral library off of that in the background on Vienna Ensemble Pro while running Cubase in the foreground and just like wiring it just through just locally, you know? Um, and whenever it is that I decide that this computer can't hack it anymore and I have to get one of the new Mac Pros that they're going to release next year, who knows how long that's going to last and how many samples I'm going to be able to put into that. And so I think in terms of just technology being more powerful, yeah, I think... I only need to look after one computer now. I can hook up all of my synths to one computer. I'm just like looking at them all now. They're all hooked up to one place, to one audio interface. And I only really need to maintain that one thing. And that in terms of workflow has has been great because, you know, coming from six computers to four computers to two computers and now just to one computer as as, as the composing setup is, is is awesome. And in terms of like my own skills, I, as you know, as, as you've gone along, yeah, uh, I think... Um, I think what happens generally from project to project is that when I start a project, it's pretty slow just because I'm like throwing a lot of paint at the wall. I don't really know what the showrunner is going to love yet. When I'm collaborating with Iza, we didn't really know exactly what the other person was going to bring to the table. And so there was a lot of very sort of slow back and forth just to see like, how is this sausage going to get made, you know? Um, But then once you get going, you know, always by episode like four or five, then it's just kind of running like clockwork. And like everybody sort of understands everybody. The vibe of the show is figured out. Um, I've never written such intense electronic music before than I have for Panic. Um, And discovering new things that I wanted to do with synths, different ways that I wanted to filter them and voice them and add effects and and that sort of thing, um, I feel like I would not have been able to have done that, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was in here. But because of having worked with this stuff for so long, I sort of like understand like, well, this is the character of a virus. This is going to be the character of Arturia's plugin, whatever. Like this virus is the being the name of, of the synth for anyone curious. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sorry. I know we're in the, we're, we're, we're in the, the time of COVID. So you should probably explain what a virus <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> the Axis virus TI, if I'm going to say the whole, whole word uh, for it. But um, yeah, just like, I think, you know, I listened to this, the tracks that I made when I was in college, I wrote some very, very bad electronica in college um, and just listening to that and just like thinking about just like how hard it was even just to make kind of the cruddiest sound and then you know being able to to have to compose you know a five minute cue in an afternoon and just having all these tools readily available and having the experience and 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 the uh, just the just the chops to be able to do it quickly and have it sound good i i think that's just something that comes from having to do this every day for years you know yeah for sure and yeah, from what I heard, it I mean, there's some really cool synthetic textures that do sound pretty. I mean, I guess the Axis isn't an analog synth, but there is something with hardware that just feels more. Lively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though even though the Axis virus is not technically an analog synth, there's something about the hardware effects on it. Like the first time I just started turning the distortion off, I was like, "Ah, oh, man, that does not sound like a distortion plugin. That sounds like a very specific thing to this to this box." Um, 
so yeah, even just stuff like that is like it's so specific. A lot of times plugins can be that specific, um, but you know when you're this is something that was designed specifically for the virus sound for that for for that specific hardware. There's no replicating that, I don't think. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else about the process uh, of working on a show like this that that was interesting musically speaking? Yeah, uh, I mean, Iza was in the UK. You know, we started out in the same city at the very beginning of it. We started working on it January, February, twenty twenty, which is before everything locked down. We were able to be in the same studio maybe only like three times, mm -hmm. and we really were able to get some like early thematic ideas down. You know, recorded each other on piano a little bit just to get sort of the vibe of what the other person could play and the, their 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 general vibe on piano. Um, and uh, as soon as we started sort of hitting a stride in person. Um, Isa had to go back to the UK for, for, for family stuff and then everything shut down and she was like, well, not coming back, <laughs> you know, uh, we were, yeah, we were supposed to meet back up in, uh, in Austin and just like, because the show filmed in Austin mm -hmm. and we were going to go and see the set and like meet more of the production. And we couldn't do that because basically the, the weekend we were going to go, there was a weekend they shut down South by Oof, Southwest. Yeah. And so it, we just, we just didn't go. Um, and uh, yeah, so since I haven't seen Isa in person since since February of 2020, and we had only done maybe the first episode and a half at that point. And so, yeah, the vast majority of this score was done by two composers on two completely different continents, completely virtually. Wow. You know, um, one of the benefits of her being in the UK, me being here, was that she was asleep while I was awake and I would be sleeping while she was awake. And so it lent itself to a very nice back and forth kind of workflow where I would work on cues during LA hours, figure out stuff that I wanted her to sort of put like the is a flavor on, bounce it out, send her a session, post it, go to bed. And then she would do stuff and work overnight. And then I would wake up to like 30 texts from her being like, okay, I did this, 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 this. I'm sending you this cue, this cue, this cue. It'd be great if you could put your flavor here, 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 here. She can't play guitar. And I'm like a sort of like intermediate guitar player. And so I could at least put some things on there. Um, and especially for the sort of music that they were, that we were making, really the guitar stuff that I was doing was very textural and very like just tweak knobby and, and just like getting it to fit into the textures that we were doing with the synths uh, already. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was that sort of thing. And we did that for, you know, for months, just back and forth, tweak, tweak, tweak. Amazon was really great about, letting us experiment and do weird things and being like, hey, can we just get like an extra day for this one before we have to turn to revisions? We just want to massage this extra cue a little bit just so you can really get to a place where it's it's where you're really blown away by it. Um, so they were lovely in their collaboration uh, about that too. And just, uh, yeah, I've never done a score this way, obviously, because there's never been a COVID before. Right. <laughs> I've never co uh, collaborated with somebody in Europe before either. Um, but looking back on it and now that we've heard the final masters from, from the Milan release and just like hearing it all collectively in one place uh it's it's there's no other way that we would have been able to create something so i think different if our process hadn't been forced to be so different yeah for sure and i'm so glad that the soundtrack's coming out soon um but yeah i just want to have i think one more question before we go to the final segment for the podcast mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. which kind of goes back to like the role model thing when you were talking about wanting to be a musician and uh i mean we spent some time recently in this uh uh, API composer group. Um, mm -hmm. uh, start with Chris Tin for anyone curious and feel free mm -hmm. to write in if you're interested in joining, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> are there any Asian, uh, composers or aspiring composers who've come to you seeking guidance or mentorship or anything like that? Because I feel like Absolutely, I'm inspired yeah. by you and I just want to say that now too, but. Oh, thank yeah. you. I'm inspired by you and the work that you do as well and your, your outreach and your just sense of community. I mean, like you were one of the the, the big proponents of, of of getting this AAPI composer group together and it has spurred such wonderful conversation and just a sense of community that didn't exist there before. So mm -hmm. the fact that you were, you had, you and Chris put this thing together, it's just like, it's, it's awesome. I, I was on a panel this morning and was talking about it on the panel this morning just about how how interesting it has been to be to, to have that group exist um, and to for us to be able to support each other and give each other tips and just to be like somebody asked for a recommendation for a photographer the other day and like all of us are chiming in and be like oh I use this person I use this person this person was great um, just having that and just and, and and the sense that we're all in it together is, is awesome so thank you also for that um, for making for putting that together um, but uh, yeah you know uh, especially when I was working on Star versus the Forces of Evil, um, 
and was on Tumblr a lot and having a big fan base on Tumblr, that's where I would get a lot of asks, as they're called on Tumblr, about about being in the profession. Um, and a number of them were are um, Asian Americans or just you know actual people who lived in in in, in Eastern Asia, um, and they would write specifically about that. Um, I remember one. This was actually not on Tumblr, but I was uh, I did a Reddit AMA right before the series finale for Star, and there was a very specific question about you know there aren't that many composers who are Asian. I know this experience that the person was saying, like, I think this experience for an Asian American composer coming up is inherently different than it would be for any other, for any other's ethnicity or, or, or anybody. And so, um, yeah, I did speak a little bit about my experience to that and just like the way that I view that. And I do think that the more that we can reach out to younger people who are interested in this sort of thing, and the more that they see names like Kim or Wang or Cho or Chung or anything like that at the end of a composer's name when they view the credits on a movie or a TV show, every name they see and every person they talk to is just going to chip away at that, you know, whatever it is that is blocking them from from doing what it is that they want to do. Um, you know, the thing is, is that every time a movie like Crazy Rich Asians comes out or Parasite wins an Oscar or Minari wins an Oscar or whatever, like if the more commonplace that becomes and the less of like an anomaly or a big, huge stop the presses event that becomes, the more natural it will feel for younger people to want to be a creative professional, even if they think that it is not in their path to do. Um, and the more that we can just set that example, the more, you know, that you and I can get gigs and keep on putting our name out there. I think just doing that and then making yourself available for, for anybody who has questions, I think it's, it's so important because I didn't have anybody to talk to when I was, you know, learning music as a, as a teenager. I didn't know anybody could be talked to about this sort of thing. Right. Yeah. It's not, you know, readily available knowledge. <laughs> No, it's not, especially for, for, for immigrant parents who don't really think about entertainment as like an early thing, uh, as an early profession for their kid to go into. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard. And if we can provide that, then that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, without further ado, I think we'll go to the last segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk. I feel like this has <laughs> been a pretty technical episode, but it's a segment where I list yeah. off a tech topic and you can say as much or as little as you want about it. Terrific. The first one is DAW. Uh, I use Cubase. Um, I've, I've, I've used uh, a bunch of different ones. When I went to USC, I was using Digital Performer, and then after that, I used Logic for a while. And now I just primarily use Cubase and Pro Tools. When everybody asks me for advice, I'm just like, they all do the same thing, man. Just like, <laughs> just find one that you like. We find these like message boards or YouTube comments about people being like, oh man, this one's like so much better than this one. And oh, why are you using that? That sounds terrible. It's like, ah, oh, whatever. Who cares? Whatever works best for you. Yeah. But though, having said that, I did recently... Uh, I don't know. I feel like the one thing with Cubase is if you are needing to work in surround, I think it is notably better than some of the others. Oh, is it? Or Pro Tools, but even, most people don't work in surround. I don't even work in surround. <laughs> so I didn't even know that was a thing. I guess whenever it is that I do work in surround, I'm glad I'm already in Cubase then. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's some like, yeah, I mean, exactly. They all have kind of their own quirks that you have to work around, but you can write good music in any of them, hopefully. On anything. Yeah. For Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always sort of liken it to like when you're when you are trying to learn a new DAW, it's like you're being you're like you're you're put in the middle of like a an open market, but like what you want and you're looking for an apple. But what you call an apple, this market calls a banana. And so like you have to like make that connection of being like, oh, I'm in Cubase, I would really like to slice this region. What do they call it in this program? <laughs> you have to sort of find that sort of thing. Um, it'd be nice if there were universal keystrokes between all the programs, but you know, nobody's going to do that for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, next one I have here is Microcorg. Microcorg? Um, yeah, I really like the sound. I, I don't have one anymore. I no. have a mini log <laughs> now. Yeah, a mini log, mini log now, um, which I think is really great. Um, it's just this like really functional, I don't want to say vanilla, but like kind of do it all analog synth. Um, the thing that I'm really into right now um, that I used a lot on Panic is the Arturia Micro Freak, um, which is like fairly inexpensive, but just like weird. It has a weird keyboard that does not work like a normal keyboard. It's like It's like, it's like a, I forget what it's like a PCB board or something like that, where like your fingers are actually completing the electronic connection. And so 
you don't push harder. You like cover more of it with your finger for a specific effect, um, and then you can map pretty much anything to anything. Like the, the 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 mod matrix on it is really wild, and you can connect anything to anything, and it just sounds cool. And it's just like, you know, it's it's made out of plastic. It's like not like a heavy duty thing by any means. That's why it costs like relatively inexpensive, but it sounds wild. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's really fun to play and it's really fun to program. Uh, so there's a bunch of sounds from Panic that came from that. So right now that's where like, that's the thing that I'm using the most and just experimenting with. Nice. Yeah, I love that it is uh, exactly that. It's unconventional and, and affordable because I, 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 all of the sounds that we can buy and like, you know, whatever with MIDI, it's like, if you can find a new interface to kind of perform it, like, in terms of a similar thing, I mean, when I was in a music tech program at NYU, I built this box that was a cardboard box. I soldered pennies into a circuit board so you could touch them and <laughs> it would send MIDI messages or like send whatever messages. And then it felt like a kind of interesting experience. I think I called the money box. <laughs> That's wild. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I was in, when I was in undergrad, we were using, um, God, I cannot remember the name of the program anymore, but it was basically like an object oriented. Maximus um, Right? Yes, yeah. that's what it was. Perfect. Perfect. That's exactly what it was. And I basically turned the computer keyboard into like a playable, like a playable sampler. <laughs> like you could use it as like a sampler instrument. So, like because on the like fly. every DAW has that now, but it wasn't a thing. I yeah. know, but I was just like, it wasn't a thing back then. And I was like, oh, what would it be cool if you could play this as like an instrument? And so that was like a semester project that I did in, in college. Yeah. Um, yeah, that stuff is is is. I can't imagine me spending the time to do that now. But back then, it was it was really cool. Yeah, it really blew me away when I was talking to Jeremy Zuckerman, who did Avatar: Last mm. Airbender, because he uses Super Collider, which is equally nerdy. Mm. But except yeah, that super one, nerdy you stuff. have to like actually code, like you write in oh, the yeah. lines. <laughs> yeah, I could not like yeah stuff like that stuff like C sound. I just could never really wrap my head around. Uh, I just I, I I couldn't do it. Yeah, I would have liked to being like a, an electronic person, but no. Couldn't do it. Sure. Well, the last one I have here is guitars, whether it's actual guitar models, plugins, amps, processors. Yeah. Um, the guitar. So when I was working on the show Abby's mm -hmm. on NBC, um, I for the first so I, I went out and I sat down at a guitar store and like actually played through guitars. I didn't know how to play guitar until I moved out to Los Angeles. Um, mm -hmm. And having worked for Swihart for so long and just like working on a bunch of projects that were always asking for it, I was like, oh, this is probably something that I should learn. So I took six months, you know, took some lessons um, and then just sort of figured out a bunch of other stuff on my own through online tutorials and whatnot. But, and I, I bought at various points like a Strat and like a Les Paul just sort of things that, that, that are like necessary to have, but I never really like went to a guitar store. I never felt that I was, I, I was like reasonably good enough to sit down in a guitar store and really pick something out. But when I got Abby's, which was a very like rock guitar sort of thing, um, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna like take this first paycheck. I'm gonna go to a guitar store and just sit down and play what they got. And so for the first time, I, I actually picked the guitar that I really liked and that I really liked playing. And it's, um, it's a Fender... Uh, American Elite Telecaster semi hollow body. Mm -hmm. um, and it's in a nice, I'll hold it up because you're on Zoom so you can see it. Um, but it's this nice, like, very natural finish. It's like super light because it's semi hollow. The action is like very easy and just, um, yeah. Ever since having that, ever since getting that guitar, I have not picked up my old Strat or Les Paul at all because I just, this guitar something about it like fits in my hand and you're i mean you're like a really good guitar player like maybe you have more experience with this like i didn't know how well being a pianist i knew sort of like the ins and outs of like how i could get into a, a piano that i'd never played before yeah. or like the sort of quirks of a yamaha versus a steinway or versus a Kawhi versus a like a bosendorf or stuff like that but like when you pick up a guitar like either one that is yours or one that you're trying out that is new. Like, what are the things that you look for in a guitar when 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 you're playing it for the first time? Yeah, it's hard to tell, but like, there's some things about like just like you know the feel of the neck. Sometimes like some of them are like thinner than others. Mm -hmm. Like your thumb will mm -hmm. be like right next to like your middle finger when you're playing in terms of like the neck is mm -hmm. that thin, and I, mm -hmm. I kind of hate that because it makes my like wrist hurt after time. And um, a lot of like '80s guitars kind of had that thing going on because they promised that you could play faster and shred like Steve I. <laughs> ah, um, that was, that was what they wanted. For me, it's weird though. Like, I feel like I don't care about like pickups or electronics anymore. Um, I mostly care that it sounds and feels good. Like if you're sitting down and guitar store mm. employees kind of think I'm strange and that I'd never like plug into the <laughs> amp unless like I'm about yeah. to purchase a guitar cause it's that close. But yeah, 90% uh -huh. I feel like if it sounds good acoustically, you could throw a pickup in and it sounds great. You killed it here with Tech Talk. Don't tell the people what else you got going on. 
You know, um, right now I'm actually working on my first uh, collection of piano music, which I've never done before. Um, and just, you know, when I was done with Panic, it was such a specific thing and a specific workflow and a very specific sound. I wanted to do something that was completely opposite of the thing that I've been doing for the past year. Um, which I think is a nice exercise. Just like when I finished Star, for example, my mind was like very much in that mode. Mm. And when I demoed for projects immediately after Star, all the demos just kind of sounded like Star because I never sort of did a palette cleanser after I was done because my brain was just sort of still working that way. So right. when Panic was done, you know, I'm a pianist by nature and like that's the thing that I, I feel like I am best at. That's the thing that I've done most besides sleeping and eating in my life is playing piano. Um, so yeah, I just sort of sat down and just started writing sort of classical like modern classical style things and have amassing a small collection at some point when i can get back into a studio with a piano that is, my piano is good but i don't want to record it for like a for like an album what kind of piano like do you have so there i have a yamaha u1 nice. upright uh, it's, and it's lovely um but like i don't really have like the mic expertise or like the placement to, to really get it to be what i want it to sound like for this style of music right maybe for like pop for pop or like film scoring it's lovely but for like solo piano music i don't think it's really going to work the way i want it to. how about um sample libraries then in terms of like recording the ideas like do you have any piano ones you like for record yeah for recording ideas totally um i i mainly use the ones from imperfect samples interesting uh, yeah. which is a, a smaller company i think those sound great i use their upright and their uh and their grand more than anything at this point um but uh yeah those i use more than anything else i really like those those i think fit really well into a film scoring sound nice. you know if i soak it in a lot of reverb or just put a delay on it or something it sounds fantastic um so yeah for those i really like uh but first the scratching it down ideas i'll even use i don't really love <laughs> i don't love it but i I, I use the Arturia piano plugin just because there's no samples in it. I just load up something that sounds kind of nice for what I'm for what I'm writing at the time, and it react it, it's nice and tweakable, and it reacts really well to a MIDI keyboard and the, the touch that I have, and so I'll, I'll use that a lot too. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to get to like I don't know to East West and use their piano. I love their piano. Um, if I can sit down there and record these things with a, a legit engineer when everything is opened up again and I feel comfortable sitting in a, a space that's not my house for more than 20 minutes, uh, yeah, I would. I really hope to be able to do that and release that. It would be a nice thing to be able to put this out into the world. Amazing. Well, super excited for it, and it was such a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, good talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.